Welcome everyone to the June episode of the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. I'm Nancy Anderson, and we've got a really great one for you this month. It's all about creativity and how to get in the zone so that you're doing more creating and less fretting or overthinking. It's only a coincidence that the Can Lion International Festival of Creativity happens to also be going on this month. But we welcome this happy accident. Look, it's a theme. Evelyn Mallerney Barnes, our Vice President of Content, is leading our roundtable conversation with a pair of screenwriting experts who also happen to be podcast hosts themselves. And then I'll be back to do the Red Questionnaire segment with Melanie Klausner, Red Havas US's Executive Vice President in our New York office. But first, Ellen, you want to take it away for us? Yes, I'm so excited because we're discussing one of my very favorite topics, which is writing and how to be better at it. Better is all in the eye of the beholder, right? So what I mean by writing better is to write with intention, write with joy, write with a specific audience in mind, write to make a point and then go and actually make that point. At the end of the day, we want to write things that other people can't help but read. This is actually the topic of the agency's newest white paper. It's called Content That Cuts Through. It's a modern guide to writing copy for audiences that are chronically distracted and cynical, which are things that Havas Group's Meaningful Brands research tells us that consumers are. So you can find this new white paper and that Havas Group research linked in our show notes. And know that no matter what you do for a living, writing and storytelling are two of the most powerful ways you have to put ideas into the world. They're also a big part of job descriptions these days. So if you can bring these skills to the table at your workplace, you can consider it a massive competitive advantage. On average, employees spend 19.93 hours on written communication each week. That's nearly half of the 40-hour work week. This is according to research from Grammarly and Harris Poll. That same study estimates that businesses lose up to 1.2 trillion annually because of ineffective communication. For today's roundtable chat about writing, I'm joined by Sadie Dean and Jeannie Vallette-Bowerman, who happen to not only be accomplished writers themselves, but who frequently speak and write about the craft of writing, screenwriting in particular. They are also co-hosts of the Reckless Creatives podcast, which you will also find linked to in our show notes. So welcome to our podcast, Sadie and Jeannie. Thanks for having us. I have questions for you, but first I want to introduce you more fully to our listeners. So Sadie Dean is the editor of Script Magazine, and she writes the screenwriting column Take Two for Writer's Digest. She is a writer and filmmaker based in Los Angeles and has been serving the screenwriting community for nearly a decade, providing resources, contests, consulting, events, and education for writers across the globe. Additionally, she was a second rounder in the Sundance Screenwriting Lab and has been nominated for the Humanitas Prize for a TV spec with her writing partner. She served as a script supervisor on projects for WB, TBS, and Awesomeness TV, as well as many independent productions, And she also has produced music videos, short films, and a feature documentary. And Jeannie Vallette-Bowerman, I love this line in your bio. It says that a midlife crisis led you from a 15-year ownership of a motel and restaurant to finally becoming the writer you always dreamed of. Mm -hmm. Today, Jeannie is an executive at Pipeline Media Group and editor-in-chief of Pipeline Artist. She also formerly served as editor-in-chief at Script Magazine. 
and still has a regular column on the site entitled Balls of Steel, which was selected as recommended writing by Universal Writers Program. Jeannie was also a senior editor at Writers Digest, launching its Take Two column. And when she isn't sharing her writing war stories in her columns, she speaks at conferences and universities around the country. She's recognized as one of the top 10 most influential screenwriting bloggers, is co-founder and moderator of the weekly Twitter screenwriters chat, hashtag script chat, and wrote the narrative adaptation of the Pulitzer Prize winning book Slavery by Another Name with its author, Douglas A. Blackman, former senior national correspondent of the Wall Street Journal. So we have two quite the accomplished guests. I'm so happy to have you guys here with me today. It's really weird to hear your bio read. (laughs) Um, Well, I want to start today by reading a quote for you to to react to. And it's from Jason Freed. He is the CEO of Basecamp. And um, it was in his book, Rework. He wrote, if you were trying to decide among a few people to fill a position, hire the best writer. That's because being a good writer is about more than writing. Clear writing is a sign of clear thinking. Great writers know how to communicate. They make things easy to understand. They can put themselves in someone else's shoes. They know what to omit. And those are qualities you want in any candidate. Writing is making a comeback all over our society. Writing is today's currency for good ideas. So I want to know, what is your assessment um, of society's collective writing skills? Because sometimes I wonder if writing is actually a dying art. That's a really good question. When I think of just pairing that quote for writers, especially in terms of marketing, it's, you know, you want the clear message. And I think a good writer can make a clear message of what they're selling because we're all trying to sell something through our writing. But I do know that there's a lot of tools now. And I don't know if it's, I feel like it is kind of hindering the real written word. And there's a lot of AI services that do that and does, I think, hinder writing and I think is kind of killing the the essence of a really good writer. I just went to this really interesting panel a couple or last week and the moderator brought up, I, I can't remember the name of the site, but it was a AI site that generates obituaries for people. And it was kind of troubling, but kind of comedic listening to what the AI was writing about someone passing. And it was very weirdly poetic, but in all the wrong ways. And again, I think it's about the clear messaging, which AI will never get, but, you know, otherwise, like, you know, a human can clearly put that out on paper. But um, yeah, that's my, that's my initial reaction to that. When I heard the part of the quote about clear thinking, I laughed out loud. (laughs) Just like in my head, I was laughing because we like to think of ourselves as writers, as clear thinkers, but I think the clear thinking part of it comes in the rewrite. You know, like um, anything I write first draft, even like a tweet. I mean, everything, an article or copy for a newsletter or or anything on the site, everything kind of needs to be rewritten to make it clear. And I always, whether it's nonfiction, whether it's a marketing thing I'm writing, copy or fiction, putting myself in somebody else's shoes for the nonfiction stuff, I'm putting myself in somebody else's shoes. How are they going to interpret what I'm writing? Am I getting the message across? Like if it's a marketing thing. But also if it's fiction, the other shoes I'm putting myself in are actually two. One, the character shoes. And second, the audience's shoes. Like, are they going to feel something? And 
you know, so to me, writing is all about whether it's for business or fiction, it's about getting people to feel. And so to either say, oh, I've got to go buy that, you know, this is, this is, sounds great. I need to go purchase that. Or, oh my God, I have to turn the page to find out what happens to this person. And, you know, my father was a writer, not, I mean, he wrote a little column in our local newspaper, but, but he was always writing and he wrote like historical reference books and things like that uh, on top of his, as a side thing on top of his regular job. But so writing was always kind of drummed into my head to be clear and concise while you write. And so that importance of writing, both for a career as a writer or just as a skill set to have as an employee um, or a business owner has always been sort of instilled in me. So this rework concept and quote in the book rework, like everything is rework about writing. And so it really um, resonates definitely. In recounting your bios, um, so much of your career arcs have similar, very similar components. So I am curious how you two met and how you decided to record your Reckless Creatives podcast together. We met at a bar. Yeah, we no, had kidding. Books. We made a deal with the devil and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so about a decade ago, uh, I was working at a brick and mortar called The Writer Store that was around for a long time. And Jeannie, I think, had just recently also came on board as the editor in chief for Script Magazine around the same time. I think you were maybe there a year before mm-hmm. I came into the mix. Um, yeah, and at the writer store, on top of being a store that serviced screenwriters and authors, we also did a lot of contests and conferences and live events and online events. And and I ran all of that. I was just thrown in. And Jeannie, who is on the East Coast, we were linked up just to start helping with programming the conferences and stuff. And we just kind of hit it off. And ever since then, we've just been really good friends and through the years and our, I've, I've done many different jobs over the years and um, we've just always been in touch. And for me getting the script job, uh, it was kind of like coming back home for me because she was like, hey, I'm getting this other position. Do you want my job? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and then we were just like, yeah, we were joking like we should do a podcast and here we are. And it's been great. Yeah. And I loved um, working at Script Magazine and and working with writers and helping them. And leaving it, like I cried when I Mm. resigned and, um, but I felt like there's only one person I want to hand the helm over to. And that was Sadie. And I, you know, the team agreed and cause they loved working with her in the past and there we are. Now we're being reckless. Yeah. (laughs) It is a reckless career. The three of us have really devoted our, our entire careers to the craft of writing. You two have worked mostly in the screenwriting space, and I've worked in uh, a lot of corporate comms and internal comms. But I think that whether we're writing a haiku or a short story or a script for a commercial or a full-length feature film, a byline, a report, many of the same writing fundamentals apply. And that's something that kept coming up for me as I was researching this paper on content. Um, For example, how to bust past writer's block. Essentially, you have to just sit down and write the damn thing, right? So two things in there. 
And having read some of your writings on writing and listened to the podcast you two do together, there is a definite tough love component to the way you approach writing. Uh, Jeannie, you just brought back your Balls of Steel column for mm-hmm. Scripps Magazine, and that name is not for nothing. Uh, I think <laughs> it indicates how tough you have to be to be a professional writer. And then the title of your most recent podcast episode together is literally called Turn Your Bitching Into a Plan. <laughs> <laughs> and Jeannie, in your most re- recent column, you wrote about how we as writers absolutely have to get past our comfort zone. You reframed it as getting out of our familiar zone. You said, stop trying to make the first draft perfect. Give yourself permission to write with reckless abandon. Write like you're naked. So what are some of the ways that we can strip away some of the gunk that's holding us back so we can, in fact, write like we're naked? Yeah, I mean, I, in my blog, one of the, I haven't blogged on, you know, do people even blog anymore? But, you know, is that term outdated? But I used to tell people that was where I practiced opening myself and being really vulnerable and writing personal essays because I felt like I opened up my wounds and handed the reader the salt shaker. Because if I couldn't do that with myself, I felt like I couldn't let myself be vulnerable when I write. I felt like I could, something would always be blocking me from pushing my characters to that place of vulnerability. And so it takes practice to be comfortable being raw and honest. And honesty is so important on so many levels. Like when you, you know, even, even in marketing, people can smell somebody blowing smoke a mile away, you know, and that they're selling hope or that, you know, but when you're honest in it, it takes a certain level for the person writing it, whether it's fiction or whether it's marketing material to, to let the company be vulnerable, to be honest and transparent with your audience. And for writers of fiction, it's, impossible to write good fiction unless you're going to be vulnerable. And, and as Hemingway says, bleed on the page. I think it just takes practice. It's very scary to do the first time you write like a personal essay that is really personal. And especially in today's age where people are in social media, so crazy, but I think the more you do it, the better you get at it and the more comfortable you get with it. And then you realize when you write that I don't think I can swear here, but we call it that effort script, you know, where it's that script that you just write with reckless abandon. Like Stephen King says, shut the door and write, you know, as if no one is ever going to read it. Those are the scripts that break you in. So unless Mm -hmm. you get comfortable doing that, you're never going to get very far. And even with, with, I work with a lot of um, literary agents at our book pipeline division, where we try to connect authors to literary agents and they say the same thing. They they want to see a query of a book that shows that the, the writer really got personal and pushed their own, past their own comfort zone to, to really dig deep and get into something that's really going to move the reader. I love that. Actually, in my initial conversation with Sadie, I told her that I have, I've written a novel that's unpublished. And mm-hmm. when I was having it edited, some of the feedback that I got in the margins from an editor was he was getting really frustrated with my main character. And he, one of the things he said was, this woman needs to go to therapy, like exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. And I said to Sadie, I was like, would you want to read a book about a main character that didn't need to go to therapy? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we have to like 
tap into uh, an extreme amount of vulnerability. And that's mm-hmm. true in fiction. And I also find it's true. I'm always pushing like my clients to go there, even with their marketing copy, because people mm-hmm. don't want to read stuff that was written by a, a robot. So Sadie, one of the things that this that I was exploring in this paper is that we as writers, this concept that we have both a clown brain and an editor's brain, and that you have to really allow the cl- the clown to take things for like a nice long joyride before the editor takes over, even though the clown is the type of person that a manager would want to like drug test. Um, <laughs> this is in fact who you want to be writing your first draft. It's that sort of concept, that duality has been talked about in many different ways. But Scott Dickers, he's the legendary comedy writer who uh, founded The Onion. He is the one who called it clown brain, editor brain. And he said, I liked this. He said, most people, as they grow up, learn to suppress the clown side of their brain because they want to be seen as adults. They want to be appropriate. They don't want to say stupid stuff. They don't want to feel embarrassed. And so they start clamming up both in life and on the page. So Sadie, I'm curious, how do you think of writer's block? Is it real? And like, what is the antidote to clamming up? I think people want it to be real because it's an excuse. Um, And you can definitely feed that beast and say it is real. But I think the more you write, you kind of learn to not make it or call it that thing. And it's just you're getting in your own way. And I like this idea of the clown brain. I think like, you know, the onion wouldn't exist if he didn't have his clown brain and put the editor brain first. I mean, it's, it's genius. Yeah. To, to overcome this, this blockage. I mean, it's like, you know, what we were just talking about at the top of the episode, it's just like sitting down and just writing. And that is the toughest thing to do. But once you start doing it and you're not thinking about it so much, I think that's when it becomes easier. Like we were doing things like the five minute, 15 minute writer sprints and next thing you know, you're writing for two hours because you just, you just forgot. You were just having a good time writing. You know, you asked for some books for on like on, on writing. And I was like, Oh, I, I gotta read this book again. It's been a while. So I read, uh, reread the Zen and the art of writing and Ray Bradbury does this thing where he'll just jot down nouns that just come to him on a sheet of paper. And then he'll come back to that and form a story around it without thinking about, what it's going to be, what his intention is just like, I, I'm excited by there's aliens and there's a Ferris wheel. I'm going to write something about that. And there's something exciting about that. And I think that is where that clown brain comes into where you just have that reckless abandon, like Jeannie says, and not putting pressure on yourself to do, to make it seem like you're an adult or being serious because, you know, you don't want to do that. That's not fun. That's not, you don't want to write like that. At least I don't. Yeah, it's, I, I gotta say a writer's block is not real. It's just all in your head and you just have to get out of your way. And we have every excuse in the book to not write. Procrastination is real and I do it all the time, but usually I always find that when I'm against the clock, that's when the good stuff comes out because I'm not editing myself. I'm just getting everything out and then I go back and rewrite it quickly and that's when I'm putting all the thoughts I have out on the page. And it's usually the stuff that I've been thinking about during the procrastination period. <laughs> and it works. But that's that's what works for me. I don't know about like for Jeannie. I, I agree with you. I don't really believe in writer's block. I think it's it's more procrastination. And one thing I do is sit down. I love doing stream of consciousness writing where you just 
sit down, set a timer for like 15 minutes and just write anything that comes to your head. And it can be about your character or about, you know, anything that like, like if I'm trying to write an article, I'll just sit down and just vomit out some thoughts. And that always kind of helps. It's kind of like cleaning the engine or something like that. That always helps me. And Scott Dickers, I actually did a panel. I moderated a panel with him for the writer yeah. store like a zillion years ago. Do you remember that, CD? Yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Yep. That was fun. So the stream of consciousness style of writing, is that similar, Sadie, to what you were describing as the the writer's sprint? And like, how do you, when you guys are doing something like that, what are the instructions? Uh, there, there's no rules. It's just do what you need to do. Um, for us, we were kind of doing it like as a challenge, just like motivate people on social media to just sit down and, and do it. Like for me, I was just rewriting a script. I think Jeannie was working on something. It's just, you know, okay, I'm going to tackle this scene or I'm going to finish this character, you know, intro or whatever it is, just whatever gets you through and moving forward on, on a project. Uh, it could be anything. Usually like for a set period of time, like 30 minute sprint or a half, an hour sprint. And then it's anything that makes progress, like whether it's editing something, outlining something, actually writing something, anything that moves you forward. I wanted to ask you, Jeannie, too, and speaking of this concept of our clown brain, um, if we could talk about the role of humor in writing, uh, which also requires extra vulnerability because we have to be like, is this actually funny? It's too weird. Do you have a certain way that you approach the comedic in screenwriting? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a comedy writer, but um, I find that, remember that movie, Lars and the Real Girl? Mm -hmm. Did you ever see that? So good. And it was, the key for me in humor is always finding that honesty and truth in a situation and then spitting that. And that's what makes it funny because people can relate to whatever it is because it's so true. And so like in Lars and the Real Girl, um, when Ryan Gosling falls in love with this blow up doll, you know, I remember first reading the description of it going, I don't want to watch that stupid movie. <laughs> like, what the heck? It was so good. It made you laugh. It made you cry. You felt every emotion that there was because he was so real in how he acted and that you believe he was in love with this doll. And you know, and it, so it was humorous at first, but then when you get behind it and you start seeing it from his perspective, putting yourself in his shoes, you start realizing, you know, how beautiful, what a beautiful love story it was with him and a blow up doll. And it was funny. I mean, so it's the yeah. truth, I think that makes something funny. Yeah. Yeah. And to go off of that, uh, I actually just interviewed some really great comedy writers who were dealing with things that were very relatable. Uh, one was Ted Lasso, uh, one of the writers from that. And it was the same thing. It's just tapping into your true stories and how you bring that to the page and finding the awkward moments that are funny. And then the other one was uh, Pen15, which is about young girls going through the awkward stages of being a teenager and just how they were sharing stories that they thought was unique to them and embarrassing to them and then realizing that it was a shared uh, awkwardness amongst their peers and how you tap into that and find the funny things from just the simple mannerisms to weird stuff happening at home. But yeah, it's just mining for the truth and, you know, finding the comedy through that. Well, how do we know then at what point it's time to invite the editor to the table? Um, 
when when do we edit when do we ask for feedback and then how you know there's a lot of talking about like sleeping on your writing right like putting some time between the writing and editing process so how do you handle that Sadie good question usually uh after I've written a sound first draft for myself that I feel comfortable either sharing with someone else or that I know that I'm ready to go back and start reworking it. I do have a handful of friends uh, who are also filmmakers and writers that I go to for for their opinions and feedback. And it just depends on where I want to take this project, if it's more of just a thing I'm doing or if it's something I'm going to try to get out there. But I don't know, it's every project's different in terms of like when I'm ready to be like the editor of my projects, sometimes I don't want to go back <laughs> or sometimes I do need some space to like just step away from these characters because they're a little too much. Or I have one project where I, I'm just really afraid of my characters. Like I don't want to ruin their world. And so I'm very delicate how I approach that and rewrite their stories. So it just, it just depends on what I'm doing. But I do think there is a point where you do need to like step away and maybe get some eyes on it if you're working on it for too long you might you might be overdoing it but that's that's my my take on it feedback is really hard because I think a lot of times especially for fiction okay so like if you're getting feedback on just some copy or writing marketing whatever that's different that's that has to perform a certain function so like if I you know want feedback on it I'll usually just ask Matt you know uh, Matt Mistich who I work with and and it'll always find something wrong. What I did. <laughs> but I, I think the first step is as soon as you think you've got it as good as you can get it, you know, then, then I hand it to somebody and say, okay, I need some thoughts on this. Like, what can I get back? And then it's also the second step is when you read the feedback that comes in, like take a chill pill, you know, this isn't personal there. The goal is to try to make the story better. And the trick is figuring out, especially when it's fiction, how, how am I how are their suggestions? How, do the, how does my gut feeling react to that? And are they trying to make this their story? Because it's still my story. So I need to be true to the story I'm trying to tell. And, and I would say in the screenwriting space, don't just go on Twitter and, and DM some famous screenwriter and say, hey, will you read my script? Like, and don't, don't DM us either. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's not how you do it. I actually have a, an article on Script Magazine um, called The Secret to Finding a Screenwriting Mentor. I think that's what it's called. And where I talk about how I found my mentors without asking. And everything can be done organically and paying it forward and just being a good human. And, um, and you'll find trusted readers to help you. So that kind of segs into the next thing I wanted to ask about. And, and Sadie, it's that um, in the content that cuts through paper, I wrote a section about writing effective headlines. Uh, and in doing my research for that section, I found that there are actually headlines that are so legendary that people are still talking about them decades later. And that the art really of writing a good headline is just to get someone to read the first sentence and then the first sentence to get them to read the second sentence. And you mentioned to me that that headline writing reminds you of screenwriters writing log lines. Can you tell me how so? And also, can you start by telling those of us who don't know what a log line is? Yeah, so a log line is basically a usually a sentence. Sometimes people get a little willy-nilly and go a little longer, but it's usually a, like a one-line sentence giving you the essence of what 
the script is going to be about. Um, it gives you, you know, sets up your character, what they're up against, and, you know, just kind of an idea of how they'll overcome this uh, without giving it away. But this is essentially what hooks you into reading the screenplay. And then, you know, usually it's logline, you did a, and then it's like, okay, well, now we'll read your synopsis. Um, and maybe now it's, we'll look at your lookbook, but that's a whole different thing because it's changing mm-hmm. every day. And then you get to the screenplay and it's basically your, you know, your screenplay should reflect what is in that logline. But yeah, it did, it is very similar in writing a good headline. And, you know, I, Jeannie and I both do this daily for our respective online content of just writing a good title for a blog or, you know, an article, whatever it is, and getting people to click on it and read it. And it's how do you hook them in? It's the same with blog lines or like you said, writing a good headline for a marketing pitch. We're all selling them a, a thing of like, come, come to our side and read this thing, even though we're not selling you anything, uh, but we want you to read this thing and hope that you get what we just said in the article of like how to master log lines. Okay, now come in here and we're going to show you how to write an effective log line. But yeah, I can, you know, there's so many iconic headlines or even movie quotes that become part of a selling pitch for a a movie as well in their log line. And it's, it sounds easy (laughs) to do it, but it's really hard. And I, when I was first starting out, I would always write the script first and then go and write the log line and be totally confused by what I just did because it was just not matching up. So a lot of people say, write the log line first and then write the screenplay. And it's like nine and day difference because you kind of have your blueprint of very simple blueprint of where you're going to go with your story and your screenplay, which I think is kind of similar with a hooky sales pitch as well. Just, I was curious, Sadie, is that how you, like when you're writing an article, you do a lot of interviews? Um, for Script Magazine, is that how you approach that too? Would you write the headline of your article before you write? No, it's a little bit of a mix. If you know, depending on if I'm watching something and then something stands out to me either through character or theme, and there's like a very clear anchor point in the theme, then it's like, okay, I know that's gonna be part of my headline. But for interviews, it kind of comes out of that after I've spoken with the person. Yeah, I usually do headlines last. Um, and at Pipeline Artists, we're a little different. We're, I don't know, we're strange in a, in a fun way. <laughs> when I was in Script Magazine, I was, when my headlines, it was always like, I need to find the keyword and have everything SEO driven and all of that. And at Pipeline Artists, we're just kind of a little bit of rebels. And um, like our our whole theme of our site is to tell artists what they need to hear, not necessarily what they want to hear. So we try to come up with article titles that are just cool and engaging, but not necessarily SEO friendly, which is that smart? I don't know, but we're rebels. So we do things differently, but it's usually after and I'll come up with titles or my writers will come up with titles or Matt will come up with something. We're pretty flexible about that, but I definitely will read, especially when articles are being submitted to me by our contributors. I'll read through the articles first and then I'll go through and adjust the headline accordingly. So it doesn't sound too how to do this or how to do that. Even though those are super great titles for SEO, we just personally kind of our brand kind of avoids that. Yeah, I'm going to vote for a really beautiful quality piece of writing over something that's perfectly optimized every time. And I yeah. think that's the stuff that goes viral, the stuff that 
goes viral is the things that are bright, not the things mm-hmm. that the search engines love. Well, I, I'd like to end the episode with one more idea that I want to bounce off of you guys. And it's just been this really profound outlook on writing for me. And it's been something that's come to my attention really just in the last year. I read this book called um, Several Short Sentences About Writing by an author named Verlin Klingenborg. And he makes a really strong case for just writing simple sentences and short paragraphs. And in the book, actually, each sentence is almost always its own paragraph. He said, you can say smart, interesting, complicated things using short sentences. How long is a good idea? Does it become less good if it's expressed in two sentences instead of one? Writing short sentences may feel weird at first, he warned, but they carry you back to a prose you can control. They help eliminate transitions. They make ambiguity less likely and easier to detect. And to me, this just helps not only writers get out of their own way because it's just easier to write a short sentence than to write a long one, but it's such a gift to the writer. It's that clear thinking. And once more, it just gets us quickly to the point. And then another quote that I loved that is sort of in line of this idea of keeping it simple is Jay Abram. He's the founder and CEO of the Abram Group. He said, sometimes the best copy to sell a horse is horse for sale. <laughs> uh, thoughts on that? Well, yeah. And in, in, the, in the world of screenwriting, less is more on the page. Uh, it's always, you know, more white on the page uh, is an easier read. And finding ways to distill, you know, a six-line character intro into two lines. And, you know, that's where the fun is, I think, during the rewriting process is finding those fun words that do distill action and, and everything, you know, in between. And it is, in fact, I mean, you know, you could write, like, for an action script, you know, the, the card careens off the road and then explodes and the whole thing and go into every detail and you know leaves paint marks on another car and you just say like the car goes boom like we get it you know just like move on and the same thing with like you know transitions too it's just how how clear and concise can you get to the point of moving on to the next action piece of the screenplay Um, and the same thing goes for dialogue too like you don't want every character to have a monologue (laughs) every time they they open their mouth so yeah less is less is more and when you say the thing about like the short sentences that is absolutely um something that i use with article writing and when i'm editing my contributors articles i'm always breaking up paragraphs it's just easier on the eye it's more digestible you actually get the reader to read more of the content when you're putting up shorter sentences because they're if they're when they're all lumped together, they're it's easy for people to just skim right over that paragraph. But when they're broken up, you're reading each sentence. So, you know, as an editor of an online content, I always break paragraphs up a lot. But in terms of learning that skill set to write concisely and with meaning, I would say when Twitter was 140 characters, that was the best teacher in editing yourself. Because you had, you only had 140 characters to say something. And I loved that. I was really upset when they expanded. <laughs> I was not a fan of the expansion, but I always come back to think, you know, when you told us that line about horse for sale, always draws me back to 
an Ernest Hemingway little bit of writing where he said six words and it told a whole story. Baby shoes never worn for sale or baby shoes for sale, never worn, something like that, you know, and it tells a whole story in six words. Yeah. It just gave me chill bumps. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it's like one of those things, like there's those things in your life when you're like, Oh, I wish I wrote that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the thing. Cause it's, it's just so good and heartbreaking. So yeah, I mean, basically shut up. You don't need as many words, right? One, one trick that I do for anybody, if it's a screenwriter out there, when I'm rewriting, I, I literally break my screens, my uh, scripts up into scenes, like one scene at a time. And I, it's like word choice. Like every word has to earn its place on the page. And, you know, so that like, think of it that way. And it's the same with novel writing. I mean, it, you know, being verbose isn't necessarily make your novel better. Well, Sadie and Jeannie, I think this was a great conversation and I just really, really appreciate your time. I know it's very valuable and, um, you made my week. <laughs> it was our pleasure. Thanks, Ellen. Now it's time for the red questionnaire. So happy to welcome a friend and colleague to the show, Melanie Klausner, Executive Vice President of the New York office for Red Havas US. Hello, welcome to the show. Hi, Nance. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. So excited to have you for the red questionnaire. The goal of this segment is really to ask guests the same questions to really understand what makes people tick, what makes them think, and what's inspiring them. So if you're ready, let's dig in. Let's do it. Melanie, how would you describe your job to a child? So it's really funny. My sister and I are both in public relations, and I think sometimes it can be very complicated. And we've tried to explain it to my mom a dozen times, like probably even more. And she fully still doesn't understand what we do. So trying to explain it to a child can probably be even more challenging. But what I would say, you know, I think it depends on the age of the child, but I would say that I help brands tell stories and connect with people and build and maintain a positive reputation for those brands. And what I love most about what we do is the clients and the media relationships that we build. And in my role, I especially love that I get to coach and encourage our colleagues to find their voice and find their passion and figuring out how to shape and visualize and influence and secure the stories that we tell for brands. Yeah, that's a great answer, Melanie. And I think the common thread for most of our guests is that storytelling and helping brands tell their story. Um, Great answer. So let's move on to the next one. Tell us your favorite place that you've traveled to and why. So I got bit by the travel bug when I was young. My parents sent me on a teen tour. And ever since, it's just been in my blood. And prior to joining Red Havas, I actually worked in travel PR for six years. So I had the opportunity to travel quite a bit. And so far, Spain has been just one of those most magical places that I've ever been to. And more specifically, Barcelona is probably my favorite city in the world. You know, Spain just sort of has this magic about it. The people, the history, the culture, the cuisine, they're very warm and welcoming people. And being there is just so incredibly inspiring, the art and the architecture. I mean, for me, Barcelona just has this amazing duality of being this cosmopolitan city on the sea. It's like magnificent medieval city. 
and it's punctuated by this very modern skyline. And, you know, some people may or may not know about me that I'm much more of a night owl than I am an early riser these days. So the late night lifestyle really agrees with me. And, you know, the the afternoon siesta and continuing to work, I just sort of love that whole experience eating dinner late. Um, so I would have to say Spain. The culture just speaks to you. I love that. When was the last time you've been? So actually just four years ago, um, you know, obviously travel has been a little bit late the last two years, but so I was able mm-hmm. to go um, just before starting to work at Havas. Barcelona, I've never been. So I'm going to put that on my bucket list for sure. Mel, tell us next question. What's your favorite blog or podcast? So, I mean, being in PR, I obviously read voraciously a lot of news and watch a lot of media. Um, I listen to actually tons and tons of podcasts and read a lot of newsletters and blogs. So it's kind of hard to choose one. It just depends sort of on the mood in the moment. But I think, you know, the best part is I start my day with a couple of newsletters from different news outlets, um, Business Insider, 10 things before the opening bell, and just distills down what's happening in the market and unpacks all the most impactful themes and issues that are happening, like the Great Recession. So I just absolutely love that one. The Broadsheet, which is Fortune's newsletter about the world's most powerful women. And it's great insight into what's happening you know, for women across the globe and what's top of mind for women. And especially as a female business leader, just understanding you know, what I should be thinking about and, and what's happening across the globe. And then it just sort of also gives you like that, those quick highlights and news of the day. CNN's Good Stuff is also a great lighthearted roundup. So they pull together the things for the week that make you feel warm and fuzzy. And sometimes we kind of need a little bit of laughter, a little, you know, silly animal video. Um, but for podcasts, I recently started listening to A Slight Change of Plans with Maya Shanker. And I love it because she blends compassionate storytelling with science and human behavior. And it's just a great mix to understand what's happening and how people react to challenging things and challenging moments that are happening and breaks it down. Hoda Coffee's Making Space, you know, she's a Today Show host and is just super inspirational. She digs into people and gets them to open up and tell more than they probably would in a normal circumstance. And it's been really interesting to watch her grow on the podcast and the guests and understanding their journeys and self-discovery and resilience and just sort of about the human spirit, which I think we all need a little bit of now. I know it's, you know, you're not asking me about a book, but I just have to say this because I think it was it hit home for me. Um, and we read it as an agency, you know, for Asian American Pacific Month, Islander Month. And it's Michelle Zauner's uh, book called Crying in H-Mart. And it's a beautiful ode to her mom and her culture and the complicated relationships between her and her mother. And, you know, the complex relationships we have with our parents and those memories that are intrinsically tied to our food and our culture and celebration and just wondering and knowing, you know, those proud moments and the things that they'll miss. And she really just captures all of those emotions and the imagery is so vivid and it's truly, truly spectacular. It's so worth the read. 
This was a great hit list you just gave us. We'll have to, and some great resources for com pros at any level that they could add into their own daily reading to stay up to speed. So we'll be sure to get links from you for those so uh, we can put them in the show notes and other people can access and sign up for that. Absolutely. Love that. So Melanie, tell us the headline that's grabbing your attention. If we read up on anything this month, what should it be and why? So, I mean, I think there's so many things going on, right? As, you know, as the head of people causing change for the agency, I think about employee retention and how our priorities are shifting as employees. And I think that's something that's been in the headlines for a while, but I think there's a reason for it, right? I think there's been a renaissance and employee well-being is so important. I think, you know, the headlines that also sort of attach to that, you know, looking at inflation and supply chain and how those impact employees. We think about that when people are driving in or, you know, the impact on lunches being in the office, all of those little things sort of add up to employee well-being and making sure that they feel good about coming to the office and trying to think about how to be an empathetic leader and thinking about everybody's situations and really being invested in creating that inclusive and equitable environment for our teams. I think so all of those headlines right now are all leading to and amounting to how we treat and think about employees. I mean, the New York Times just had a headline this week called Why We Still Haven't Solved the Unpaid Internship Problem. And it sort of like jarred me a little bit. I didn't even really understand or realize that there was unpaid internships. And that's certainly not the case for Havas. But just the fact that there are still unpaid internships, you know, understanding the value that we place on employees and the importance of, you know, yes, they're getting hands-on training, but people need to be recognized for their value. And you show that through paying them. So I think that's one thing um, that's really driving that conversation. Our manpower group client actually just recently put out a report on what workers want to thrive and revealing, you know, what it means to feel empowered and nurture and grow and finding that meaning and purpose in the work. And so I think that's something that really also hit home for me, just finding that purpose, making sure that our team has the support and the resources and all of those things that they need to excel and thrive at work today. I think that's like such a different take on the way that we thought about employees and employment before. So, you know, just thinking about all the changes that we've done as an agency and putting those into place, I'm very proud about how we've addressed meeting our employees' needs. And the response has been very well received. I think, you know, hopefully, Nancy, you guys have seen all of those changes and have been a part of making those decisions as part of the leadership. Yeah, definitely. And it's definitely something to track. We're watching the employee experience evolve before our very eyes. And employees are playing such a huge role in shaping that hybrid model um, and how it really makes sense and how it's going to work best for us. So it's definitely something as leaders, employers, and employees that we need to track and, and play an active role in shaping that new working model. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important. And I think it's, you know, it's complicated, right? But it's also invigorating and inspiring to see how we can shift that and and make changes immediately. Great answer. um, And something that we should all be reading up on if we aren't already. 
Um, so Melanie, we end the questionnaire with a very lighthearted fun, but most often my favorite question to ask, uh, uh, tell us what is your guilty pleasure? So I have a lot of guilty pleasures. I mean, anything chocolate and peanut butter, (laughs) (laughs) um, but you know, I would say one is prime podcasts. I have become sort of obsessed there's a podcast called Morbid. I mean, the banter between the niece and the aunt um, and the things that they raise and and the care that they take about the families that they're talking about, whether it's still a missing person. I think that's one thing that's really been interesting, you know, in the conversation of, I think, in the rise of these prime podcasts is, are people taking advantage? And I think maybe in some ways that's could be true, but I sort of see it as giving a voice and cases that have gone cold and, and taking care for families to be able to tell their stories. So it's been a really interesting piece for me that it's, it is a guilty pleasure. Um, and then there's Prime Junkie. I could listen to this woman's voice all day long. She's just such a great storyteller. And I think it goes back to being a storyteller, why I sort of also love some of these Prime podcasts. Look at that. You pulled the thread all the way through from your first question to the last question. A sign of an expert communicator right there, Melanie. I love it. Thanks, Nancy. I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, it was great having you on the pod. It was great hearing your answers to the red questionnaire. We thank you so much and we hope we'll see you again soon. Thank you so much for having me on, Nance. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. You can subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And don't forget to rate and review today's show to let us know how we're doing. We hope you'll join us again for more of the latest communications, insights, and trends from the team at Red Havas.